Thank you for listening to Value-Based Care Insights, a podcast by Lumina Health Partners. I'm your host, Shelly Juneja. The series is for healthcare leaders and organizations navigating the journey of value-based care and the ever-changing landscape of our healthcare industry. And boy, has that been true for us in the exceptional year of 2020 we've had and how we start the new year of 2021. Our goal in this series is to bring to you disruptive success strategies for healthcare organizations, leveraging our experience and having worked with some of industry's top experts and thought leaders. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to invite you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think about the episode today and other questions that are top of your mind. With that, I'd like to welcome my co-host, Dan Marino, Managing Partner at Lumina and an Industry Thought Leader for Value-Based Care. Dan, welcome. Hi, Shelley. Hope you're doing well today. Wonderful. Well, Dan, we've been discussing in our past episodes um, trends, not only that we saw emerge in 2020, but the top trends we anticipate in 2021. And one of the key things we talked about was increased in value-based care contracting, which I think is going to be pretty important and prevalent in our journey in 2021, especially with the limitations with the fee-for-service reimbursement that we've seen come through. Most organizations are going to move to some level of value-based care contracting. Also, another point that is going to be very important is what infrastructures, what programs need to be built in the background to ensure the success and sustainment of performance through the value-based care contract. What are you seeing on this, Dan? I think 2020, COVID, and all the activities surrounding it really exposed the limitations of fee-for-service and the level of fee-for-service reimbursement. As we all know, last March and April was really hard on hospitals, but it was particularly hard on independent providers who basically live and die by their procedures. And all of that is built around the fee-for-service contracts and the level of fee-for-service reimbursement. So there is a lot of momentum, a lot of discussion about creating different types of contracting. Those that are really based off of value-based care, those that are based off of some type of a performance-driven activity and performance-driven reimbursement, we're going to continue to see a lot more of that. And a lot of this is going to be led by the government and has already, but we're starting to see even commercial carriers pick it up more and more. A couple of things we had talked about even last year was foundational to not only entering into value-based contracts or performance-based contracts, but managing a performance through it is the infrastructure of programs and even the data behind it. So you, at any point in time, you have a quantifiable indicator of where you are in terms of what you need to measure and frankly what levers you need to pull or push to uh, move the needle on the performance and that's another trend we're going to continue to see come up on how we leverage data to measure and monitor the performance. Oh you're absolutely right because I'll tell you the infrastructure that's going to be required in order to drive the success of these contracts is equally as important as negotiating you know, a good contract. Um, and that infrastructure is going to include you know, data and actionable analytics, as well as care management, as well as helping our providers succeed under these contracts. All of that taken together is really what's going to drive the success in a value-based care environment. 
Well, Shelly, I'm really pleased today to have two great guests, both senior leaders within a, a great organization that is outside the Chicago area. This particular hospital is an independent hospital, which has done a great job of remaining independent, of supporting independent providers um, within their community. Michael Sisti is, as I mentioned, an executive leader with a lot of experience in managed care contracting. And his colleague, Lisa Stockdale, equally impressive with building a lot of the programs and the infrastructure to help providers um, really ensure success under value-based care arrangements. Michael, Lisa, really happy to have you here with us today. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Dan. So glad to be here. Thank you for the invite. Michael, maybe we could start with you. Um, you know, given your experience and, you know, for our audience, um, you know, you've had a lot of experience on the provider side. You've had a lot of experience on the commercial side. Um, you've seen the industry start to really shift from fee-for-service and really move into value-based care. What are a couple of the things that have resonated with you as we start to really move into 2021 and focus a little bit more on value-based contracting? 2021 is definitely the start of a new frontier, but I mean, this frontier, and at least in my experience, has started over the past decade with the payer aspect that, uh, the affordability, I think Shelly said it perfectly on uh, fee-for-service contracts just isn't there anymore for the payers. And so they've really put the constraints, whether it be an independent hospital such as our own or a large health system or a large physician group on, we can't afford these fee-for-service contracts anymore. So they've really said, you got, you got to earn what you offer, meaning the services have a value component behind it with the quality structure. So I think that, you know, at least in my experience, the big thing that you have to look on first in your contracting is, is fee for value for you. And when I say is fee for value for your organization, you really have to realize, is it, did I just read Modern Healthcare one day and saw an article on fee for value and thought that, yeah, that sounds interesting, we should do it. Or just as Shelly and you alluded to is, you know, do I have the infrastructure? Do I have the levers? Do I have the analytics? Do I have the case management? Do I have all the different items that go along with building a successful fee-for-value program? Because at the end of the day, nothing against our payer brethren, but I mean, they give you some tools, but they really throw, the essence of it is throwing a cohort of a population or a whole population at you and saying, okay, manage these lives and do the best that you can. And at the end of the day, you're like, okay, now I have control like I've always wanted on the provider side, but you realize when you get a year or two into it, it's not as easy as it looks and that you really need those tools along with the programs that I know Lisa, my colleague, is going to present to you guys that you have to have in place just to make sure that you ensure things. And, you know, something that I've always done, and just for uh, the viewer's background, I, uh, as Dan alluded to, I've been in independent systems, I've been in large health systems, I've been in moderate health systems, I've been in specialty health systems along on the payer side. So running the gambit is you really just have to realize a crawl, walk, run approach. And what I mean that is, is, is jumping into a full risk model really for you? Is it something that your organization can handle right off the bat? Or should we do something simple like pay for performance where a payer gives you a small cohort of population, whether in the government realm or in the commercial realm, and you just look at some quality metrics that you know as an organization that you're tracking, you feel you're doing a good job of tracking, and then you get some bonus dollars with full upside and no downside related to it. And, you know, 
the old saying is low hanging fruit, right? So, I mean, looking at that low hanging fruit and figuring out how you can do that. And then going from the crawl to the walk is then looking at like almost bundles and episodic type payment structures where you could take a, a section of a specialty, like for example, ortho with uh, joint replacements and say, okay, I'm going to work with my orthopods and my provider group. And I'm going to just focus on joint replacements, you know, and knee replacement. What are the importance? It's pre-op. It's the actual operation itself, which is the big dollars, but then also the post-op aspect. With the post-op aspect, am I dealing with mostly Medicare patients where the post-op is 90 days? Or am I dealing with the commercial cohort where it's just a 30-day window that I need to be cognizant of and where are my savings going to be generated? Or am I going to go into something different, especially like cardiac, which is completely different, or in the episodic realm like OBGYN, where I'm looking at a nine-month, 10-month gestational period and mom getting taken care of while baby's getting ready to be delivered. And then from that aspect, I say that's when you kind of, you can go on a tangent to like uh, patient-centered medical homes, where again, it's a larger population, but a smaller focus. And then you go into the ACO type of environment where it's, you know, straight fee-for-value, where you're looking at a total group of population, a measurement period versus a baseline period, and then getting your delta, and then going to partial capitation or partial risk or full capitation, full risk, where you're going to the blues or the Uniteds or the humanities of the world and saying, okay, I think I can take on 30,000 lives and I think I can manage it effectively. But the thing is when you get towards more enhanced ACO tracks, like similar to the MSSP program where there's large downside, or if you get into you know larger populations with payers, you have to be cognizant of that downside risk, realizing you know the example that I always use when I'm trying to explain it in layman's terms is you have uh, you know hundreds if not thousands of millions of cups of water and you can't have more of a mess. You can't tip over those cups of water, but if you have a little space in between the top of that cup of water, then you can generate a lot of savings for your institution or for your physician group and do a really good job. You just have to know what your appetite is and Dan, you really have to be realistic about it. That would be, after all I just said, that's my real advice. You really have to be realistic on what you can do best. Well, and that is so, so true. I think what you laid out is really around defining the journey moving into value-based care. And I'll tell you, you know, we work with um, a number of, of organizations around the country, and I have a number of, of CFO colleagues, um, you know, that we talk on a regular basis. And the, one of the biggest questions that always comes to me when I'm talking to these CFOs about moving into value-based care is really around the question of where do we start, right? How do I know where I need to start? What makes sense for me? How does it economically and financially support my organization? And is it going to, you know, is it going to really support that path of moving to risk? Because it is challenging and it's a little fear of the unknown. Absolutely, Dan. And that's, I think you hit on a major point with having a, I hate to say progressive because all CFOs are progressive in their own way, right? But having a progressive CFO that realizes that it might hurt a little bit in the beginning when you're trying to find that low hanging fruit and that financially that you need to be in a strong margin position and a strong financial structure and whether a hospital or a physician group, you know, health system, whatever, that you're willing to kind of take on this new venture because I can tell you again, being similar to what you just described, Dan, I've been in different parts of the country and you know, different parts of the country are still in that fee-for-service mindset that I can go to a payer and ask for 5% trends or 8% trends. And you know, those conversations are getting fewer and fewer. So yeah. I think the quicker that you get can get to this path and have a leader 
you know, CEOs as well that are progressive in thinking and, you know, lucky for where Lisa and I are, we have those types of leaders here that, you know, they kind of give us the ambiguity that we're in the strong financial position that we can venture into these different types of arrangements and kind of see how it works for our particular group. Well, and not only, I think, do we need to see the shift into value-based care because, you know, one, it's, it's going to help us change the reimbursement structure. It's going to help us manage our patients differently. Um, you know, payers are not offering the big increases in the fee schedules like they were, you know, even 18, 24 months ago. So in order to really create any type of an increase in your reimbursement stream, you have to put yourself out there, have to tie the work to performance um, and hold yourself accountable to that. Plus, you know, independent providers, and I think, you know, you're living in this world right now, independent providers are at a little bit of a disadvantage because they don't have the large mass. They have to create a way to differentiate themselves. And if you can do it by showing that you've got a lower cost structure and producing higher quality, there's your revenue stream. There's an additional revenue stream that you can include and tie into and support these independent providers. Absolutely. And for those independent providers that are listening to this podcast that have fear of that, Dan just brings up a valid point is that you can't, you can't be afraid of this. You have to realize that you're offering a very viable solution that payers are looking for because all these mergers, not that are only happening in the Chicago market, but all over the country are putting strain on the payers because the providers that are doing these mergers feel that they can do the strength in numbers where they can try and strong arm the payers like the payers used to strong arm the providers. So the independent physicians have to be willing to have that message to the payers that, you know, you can go up the street and pay a lot of money for services. I'm not, and you're not knocking the quality of care that those, that your competitors are offering. They're offering great quality service. But what I'm saying is you can get the same quality of service for independent providers that are in a group together and, but probably get it at half the price. And then the other thing that you can't be afraid of, whether you're a small group or a large group, is you know what Dan was just referencing about these trends is that it's okay to go to a payer and say, you know what, I'll take a little bit less of a fee-for-service trend, but I still need a fee-for-service trend. But you need to be willing to do that balancing act where as your fee-for-value trend goes up over the years. So for example, you can go to a payer and say, you know what, I'll do a 5% overall trend and I'll tie 3% in year one to my fee-for-value and I'll tie 2% to my, to my fee-for-service. And as the years go on throughout the deal, you change the balancing of the scale. So you still guarantee because what's happening in the example that I'm explaining is as you're getting better with fee for value, it's okay to get away from that fee for service trend because you should hope that three or four years down the road, if you choose to go down this mission, that you should be pretty good by that time for fee for value. You know what? Putting 5% on fee for value for a trend shouldn't be scary anymore. You should be like, you know what? My organization has a good handle on this. And I think that I can, that I can go for 5% on fee for value. And then, like I said, at the end of the day, if, if your appetite is a risky one and you like to gamble and you, and you go to the full risk or the partial risk, then, you know, you go down, you do go down that mission as well. And you do the best that you can, you know, that's right. why, that's why it's a marathon. It really isn't a sprint if you're looking to go into these fee for value realm. Yeah. And I love the way you laid that out and it just makes so much sense. Fee for service isn't going to go away, but we have to start shifting over to fee for value both from a contracting and a financial perspective 
but also then the infrastructure perspective too. And maybe Lisa, I could I could bring you into the conversation. Um, you know, you've done a lot of work supporting independent providers. You know, as I often say, you can negotiate the best contract in the world, but if you can't execute on it, if you can't optimize the contract, you're going to have a tough time being successful. You know, in, in your experience, what have been some of the things that say physicians, independent providers in particular, are concerned about as they move into a value-based care contract or some level of a pay-for-performance reimbursement structure? Really to tag on to what Mike is saying about understanding the financial aspect of it, it's really understanding the organizational culture and the physician engagement strategies that go along with that. Um, Being an independent institution and really, you know, hanging your hat on physician independence, you really need that foundation, a solid board, a solid group of physicians that are going to help you operate committees. Um, Mike and I can look at numbers and data all day, but at the end of the day, we're not providers. So really, the providers are coming to us and saying, this is what works and this is what doesn't within our practice and understanding the operations of an independent physician practice is key in developing these strategies. So really giving them data and analytics that aren't a hindrance to them in the normal flow of providing patient care. I think that is probably the number one key um, initiative that I continue to work on and really strive towards. And, you know, we can get better in that space 100%. Yeah, but what you're doing is you're really helping them succeed, right? I mean, especially for primary care physicians, but really all physicians in all the specialties, they are really overwhelmed, overwhelmed with, you know, the, the, just all the activity with patient care delivery, not to mention some of the administrative um, activity that, that also follows, uh, follows along with some of the, the, the care delivery. And now if we're asking them to think about aspects of care management and looking at data, they're not going to do it. So in, in order for independent providers to really succeed, we have to give them the tools. We have to give them the right level of resourcing and give them access to those capabilities that will allow them to be successful. Agreed. And I think that's really where we're taking a position and identifying really early on an opportunity that we have to create a platform for independent physicians to sort of plug into. And that's how I think of it in my mind. We'll go out, we'll identify what those care management tools are. We'll identify what those data and analytics tools are. And we'll give you the opportunity to come in with us, keep your independence, keep managing your practice the way you are today, but we're going to give you the supportive tools to help you um, transition those patients out of the hospital to get that patient back in to see you um, and conduct that transitional care visit, the technology and tools to identify your patients that need annual wellness visits and the importance behind that in succeeding in these contracts. So that's really where Mike and I are, I think a great team and I'm really excited to be partnered with him Um, laying out the financial opportunities for the physicians, but then also coming in with the programmatic tools to help them succeed. Well, and it really works hand in hand, right? So, you know, you're supporting the providers and helping them succeed around quality, hopefully making things much more efficient so you're reducing your cost of care. And then, Michael, I mean, great. This is great information for you then to build on to take into the next level of contracting. Right. So one of the big pushes and the big differentiators that we have to be able to demonstrate to the payers is we are doing this 
in a way that we're able to really reduce the cost of care, yet really showing and highlighting the quality of care that's being delivered to our patients. That message, I would think, would be invaluable as you start to have that next level of conversations with the payers. And I would say definitely on top of that, Dan, is from the quality component is that if you have a good quality team in place, the payers of Medicare really aren't asking you to recreate the wheel. A lot of what you're seeing is very standardized, whether it's CAPS metrics or HEDIS metrics or anything like that. So they're really not, maybe there's one or two offs when it comes to quality metric tracking or anything that might be different, but nothing that's too egregious that you can't track at the end of the day. So I would really you know, emphasize the programmatic part that Lisa's talking about, as well as the analytical part is that if you can find a good analytical team that understands quality with a good clinician or a couple of sets of clinicians that can get together and really speak about it, you can really make massive strides in not just the quality piece, but eventually the quality piece leads into the risk scoring piece. And then your risk scores get into a, a better atmosphere where they should be because, I mean, I'm sure all of us, whoever will listen to this, are having risk scoring problems of one or one shape or another. So, I mean, I think it starts with quality. And then from there, you can kind of you kind of open Pandora's box to start addressing other items that are of concern. Well, yeah, and then once you're identifying, you know, the risk scoring and almost realigning patients within risk cohorts, that's where the care management comes in, right? Because exactly. then you create very focused programs that working with the physicians will help drive some very specific outcomes based on those conditions of those patients. And I would think the performance outcomes that you would get from that would be phenomenal. Right, and the nice thing about this is we're speaking a uniform language because I know when you kick us off is that you really focus on our independent aspect that Lisa and I are included in right now. And you know, you don't have to be part of a mega group to be attacking what we're talking about right now. This is stuff that every clinician, mid-level physician, specialist, whatever, has to address. So, I mean, this isn't, you know, I, I, I don't want to be facetious, but this isn't rocket science. This is, this is something that everybody's dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. It's, it's a good practice of medicine. You, you definitely can see that. Sorry, Lisa, you were going to make a comment? Yeah, I just wanted to go back to your comment about segmenting the population. I think that's key. Um, really, the technology platforms that we're utilizing now gives us the opportunity to identify who those key cohorts are and really study their, their claims activity and understand the behaviors of those patient populations. That really helps us solve what care management programs do we need to focus on in order to ensure we're managing that total cost of care and generating that financial opportunity for the physicians. Right, right. Qu quick question, as you were talking, it sort of came to me. Um, describe a little bit about your care management program. Do you have a set of care managers that are that work more remotely or are they embedded in the practices? Um, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, how you've sort of structured that care management program. I mean, it's such a critical piece to driving the outcomes of the, uh, you know, the performance of the contracts. How yeah, have we, have a, we have a few key areas that we focus on. Um, we do have a, an extremely robust post-acute network um, where we have partners with several skilled nursing facilities in our community. And we work very hand in hand with those uh, leadership teams to really identify what's the appropriate length of stay for the diagnosis. 
keep the patient there for that appropriateness and then hand off to the next team. So I envision it like a four by four relay is we've got to be able to hand that baton off seamlessly so that the next leg can go on. And so we're really building those opportunities out. We have a blend of telephonic case management, the post-acute network, and we're in the process of launching a centralized uh, chronic disease program that's really bringing in uh, the consumer piece and it will be offered uh, via a digital platform that will allow our patients to engage more regularly with the care manager to really um, prevent that low value care um, and hopefully deliver more primary care services on those patients that are in our, our cohorts. Oh, that's great. Cause I'll tell you, engaging the patients at all levels and you know what we, and, and a physician colleague of mine often says this, you need to engage the patient all the way through the care continuum. When you do that, you know, in, in my mind, you keep them within the network, right? They don't leak out of the network. You have a much better opportunity to manage the costs, influence the quality, and just really drive to the outcome that you, that you want to achieve. It sounds like you've done a lot of that, and especially with your post-acute network. That's great. Yeah, I think we really have an additional partner that's not on the call today that I can, you know, give her all the credit for operating that program. I mean, she's really done an outstanding job for us. It's definitely uniformity and independence. And I think what, what we're talking about in the care continuum is right on point is that you don't need to be an employed group in order to do this. And, you know, I'm really pubbing the independence right now, but as long as you have everybody that's on the same team and on the same page with this, I think that's why, you know, Lisa's example of the, of the post-acute network we work with is it's working spot on. And like you said, it's a necessary piece in the controlling of the cost and the fee-for-value continuum that we're discussing. Well, and, and I think one of the things that has impressed me about what you all have done is you really differentiated yourself um, as you've started to move into value-based care around the type of contracts that you have and around building of the infrastructure. And that's such a driver of success for organizations that wanna remain independent. And you know, with us kind of moving hopefully out of COVID and really the focus on improving margins, there are many independent organizations out there who are really asking the question of, you know, can we continue to remain independent or do we have to have other types of, of partnerships or maybe mergers of a, or, or acquisitions? And I think, you know, what you all have shown is, hey, you can do it, it can work. You have to be focused and you have to be true to what your goals and your objectives are, but there is a path to remain independent. Absolutely. And I think what, what I like to describe it as is almost like a self-actualization as an entity is that you need to realize what you're good at. And if you're good at that, you really need to publicize that. And you also need to realize what your weaknesses are and you can't be afraid. And I'm going to say the key word here, partner. Merger and partner are two different things. And I think sometimes in the independent realm that gets really scary is that you think if I'm partnered with someone, that means that we're the same organization. It doesn't mean that. But I think that if you choose the right and key partners, that had the same goals that you do, you can still be successful in this. Yeah, I absolutely, absolutely agree. Well, listen, I want to thank you both for joining me today and, and joining, you know, Shelly and I in this, this conversation. Um, I, I, you know, clearly passionate about the direction we feel like changes um, in some of the reimbursement moving to value-based care is what's really going to allow a lot of these providers and particularly the independent providers to remain independent. 
any quick last minute advice you might give to our listeners? Maybe Lisa, we could start with you. You know, really going along with Mike, don't be afraid, really partner with uh, your key stakeholders to identify, you know, where to focus. I think, you know, um, one of my favorite sayings uh, is by a health economist, Zach Cooper, healthcare is death by a thousand cuts. There's a lot of things that we could be focusing on, but really understanding, you know, the personality of your organization and what the key focus is for your value-based contracts, design the programs around that because we're moving into a deeper state of risk and taking those chances now where it's a little bit less risk and seeing how you fare and building on those programs from there would be my advice. So start slow and focus on where, where your opportunities are now and we'll fix the world's problems as we go along. But that's yep. really my piece of advice. I love that advice. Michael, any thoughts? No, I think I think Lisa said it perfectly. And I would say just to add on to that is, you know, really emphasize partnership. And then when I say partnership, I'm not just talking about different networks or different providers. I'm talking about at the end of the day, payers are looking for partners, whether it's government or whether it's commercial. They're looking for people to partner with them, providers to partner with them so that we can give the best quality care to their employers slash employees and our patients at the end of the day. And that, that's what we're trying to do at the end of the day is make sure that everybody's taken care of in the best possible way. And yes, money is tied to that. Everybody understands that. But I think that if I was a prognosticator, the first ones that are going to partner with the payers and these types of arrangements are going to be the ones that are going to be rewarded at the end of the day and aren't going to be left in the dust with the word, with the way healthcare is going. I mean, it's okay to swim in the deep water as long as you have someone swimming with you. Well, Lisa, Michael, thank you for your time today. This was great. And I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. I, again, want to thank you both for, for joining us today. Both Lisa and Michael brought up some great points. And I think just some, some fantastic advice for, for independent providers, independent hospitals who hopefully will continue to remain independent, but yet really focus on how they need to leverage value-based contracting and the, the particular care management and all the infrastructure that's going to be required for success. I think if they can put some of these suggestions into practice and really build on it, I'm really excited for that particular direction. Absolutely, Dan. I really love the pragmatic um, uh, approaches and suggestions both Michael and Lisa shared. And I particularly enjoyed uh, what Michael listed that before you dive in, just take a pause to assess. Take a pause to assess your appetite for change, your appetite for economic impact and understanding where you are in terms of the infrastructure, be it data, be it programs, be it you know, other capabilities today. And at what pace can you introduce new things? Because that is key to sustainment and success in the new contracts that you pursue. So before you dive in, just you know, take a pause. And I chuckled that and I really appreciated when he said it's a marathon, not a sprint. Well, absolutely. Um, I, I absolutely yes. agree. And it's not a one size fits all. And one of the it's things that they've, that's really impressed me about what they've done in their organization is they've figured out what it's going to take for them to be successful. Mm -hmm. And they built their infrastructure, they built their contracting, they built, you know, their network around mm -hmm. those, you know, those key drivers of success, which is fantastic. And I enjoyed what, you know, Lisa brought to the table and, and certainly being on that side of the fence where you get, okay, we have a contract now, let's make it happen. You know, what you talked about while your programs, 
you know, case management and other programs, and certainly your data is at the heart of it, what truly makes that operational is your governance, is your provider engagement, is your management of the culture, because that is going to be the key that takes the data and really turns it into action and makes the implementation of programs seamless and value add to the independent providers versus a burden, which is really one of the biggest fears they have. So, you know, I, I really enjoyed sort of Lisa's approach to laying that out, that it is not just data because that's where the organizations typically dive in first. Let's build a big analytic platform that have tons of reports. Those mean nothing if they don't really activate the programmatic infrastructure and more importantly, meet providers where they are in terms of culture, in terms of you know, what the needs are on the front line and the capability to, to change. You know, I think that's really important. And then she really brought up uh, emphasis on that point too. Wonderful conversation as always, and really enjoy this. And we want to thank our listeners for tuning into Value-Based Care Insights podcast by Lumina Health Partners. We at Lumina are your partners in the journey to value-based care and all the pivots and challenges our industry is going through. To learn more about us, visit us at luminahp.com. And if you found value in today's conversation, subscribe to us on all major podcast platforms, including Apple and Spotify. And don't forget to leave us feedback. Join us again where we continue our deep dive into what lies ahead and invite conversations with several of our colleagues and industry thought leaders on new trends and how our industry is tackling the challenges that lie ahead. Until then, have a great day and stay safe.